Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Colleen Murphy, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. Amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the American Lung Association has announced that it is launching a $25 million initiative to end the current pandemic and defend against any future respiratory virus pandemics. Today, I'm joined by the American Lung Association's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Albert Rizzo, who also happens to be one of our advisory board members. He will be talking with us today about the association's COVID-19 action initiative and what its potential impact is for his peers in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Thank you for talking with me today, Dr. Rizzo. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, I'm curious how your own personal experience with managing COVID-19 has been. You're the chief of the section of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the Christiana Care Health System in Newark, Delaware. What have been your biggest challenges in the management of COVID-19? Well, I think the challenges fall into a couple different categories, specifically to the pulmonologists and critical care doctors in my practice and who are on the front lines. It's dealing with a disease that has shown itself to have a wide range of very mild disease to very severe disease. And the severe population that ends up to be about 15% of those who are infected have a subset that end up in the intensive care unit. And the physiology of the COVID-19 infection in the lungs seems to be a little bit different than what we have typically dealt with with regard to severe critical illness and what is often labeled as the ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. So I think it's been very clear that we've learned a lot over the last few weeks as to how some patients present with the lethal nature of this infection with anything from the ARDS picture to one of what has been termed cytokine storm or very inflammatory response, others to very significant low levels of oxygen despite not having the ARDS picture. So it's really made challenging for the physicians at the front line to implement the right types of procedures, the right settings on ventilators, and certainly trying to decide which of the various medications that have been touted in both the medical literature as well as the lay literature that might be helpful in this population. Unfortunately, to date right now, none of these drugs that have been proven to be effective in a randomized controlled trial But fortunately, with communication that's been occurring really worldwide with webinars, personal communications, doctors from Italy and Spain and the United States have collaborated with physicians from China who saw this early on to try to come up with best practices as to which medications to try in which situations. So I think those are the challenges that the physicians at the level of treating for the patients deals with. And I think the bigger challenge, as many of us have heard over the last few weeks, is how does the healthcare system in general deal with a surge of patients that bring this level of severity to their illness and tax the hospital beds, the ICU beds, the manpower issue of both physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, and first responders in such a short period of time seeing that many cases. And I think that's really where the efforts at social distancing and the mitigation to flatten the curve probably has made a big difference in the number of deaths that we're ultimately going to have recorded as a result of this. I think the initial projections are much higher than what hopefully we're going to see because of the effective institution of the mitigation measures, 
along with the, the great work that's being done in the healthcare system industry in general. It's kind of a long-winded answer, but I think those are the main challenges. The industry itself, as well as the physicians in the front line dealing with a new, new pathogen that's led to a significant respiratory illness. And that kind of leads me to my next question. How do these challenges reflect the current state of pulmonary and critical care medicine in our country? Are there maybe any areas that are especially strong or any areas that especially need improvement? Sure. I think uh, one area that this type of pandemic brings out to our attention is the ability of the workforce in critical care medicine to be able to respond. The number of critical care physicians, whether they're intensivists or pulmonary physicians trained in critical care, certainly that number probably needs to be at a little higher level even before a pandemic of this nature, there's been much in the literature about burnout among physicians, especially in the critical care units, working too long, too many hours without the break that intensive care requires, just dealing with the emotional stress and the severity of the illnesses. So I think one thing that we'll learn from this is hopefully to have a better level of critical care physicians. Now that goes to the fact of having to train more physicians in that specialty and make it more attractive for physicians to go into those specialties in the long run. The other has to do with the distribution of that workforce. I think certainly in the hot spots that have occurred in, in New York, New Jersey, these are major metropolitan areas, many hospitals, many training, uh, teaching services, uh, academic centers, medical schools, all of which, despite that number in those areas, were pushed and have been pushed to a limit where resources have been taxed. So I think redistribution is needed because as we see hotspots unfortunately develop in more rural areas, the bed capacity, the ICU capacity, and the ability of physicians who are trained in critical care to be in those smaller, more remote areas, I think has been not as optimal as we would like. In many of those areas, the primary care physicians and internists who deliver much of the day-to-day care for patients are being taxed to work more in the hospital setting, in the ICU setting, where that may not have been their their actual forte. And again, it pushes everybody's talents to a limit when that happens. So I think better distribution of manpower resources, increasing the manpower is important. And then the other issue has to do with, do you have enough capacity in hospital beds and equipment, whether it's ventilators or PPE, to have enough of an inventory, a stockpile, so to speak, for resources to be used when they're needed, but yet not put too much money into items that sit in a warehouse and not get used. And that goes to a business model that I think the federal level, state level needs to be looked at when they allocate resources for funding to have you know, reserves and stockpiles for potential emergencies and pandemics of this nature. So I think those are major challenges, both from a manpower standpoint, distribution of the manpower, and also then the availability of those uh, hospital beds and equipment to be utilized in the areas that are needed. It's clear that there are many challenges that a pandemic of this nature brings to light. So how can the COVID-19 Action Initiative directly aid clinicians in overcoming any of these challenges? Well, I think the Action Initiative from the ALA is really going to be utilized through the major arms of our mission that we use for all of our public health work, and that includes health promotions, research, and advocacy. Certainly from a research standpoint, dollars are going to be set aside for new investigators to do proposals around the virus's pathology, its pathophysiology, 
the lung and how it's affected by the virus. All this is going to be basic and clinical science that is going to be studied with research dollars with the new awards that we're going to be putting out. It's going to be titled COVID-19, an Emerging Respiratory Virus Research Award. The advocacy part of the mission will be looking toward making sure that policies are put in place to help improve readiness the next time around, to help make sure that access to care is affordable to all and is distributed in a manner that allows even the more vulnerable of our society to get the care that they need. So a lot of this revolves around things we've already been doing, trying to make sure that care is affordable, access is there, especially in a situation with COVID-19 where we've seen that the minority populations, the African-American, Latinos, and the socioeconomically deprived seem to be representing a higher number of deaths in these various hotspots like Louisiana, New York, Milwaukee. And some of that may have to do simply with the demographics. We know that that population carries with it some of the comorbidities like hypertension more than among white Americans, and that leads to increased risk of complications. We also know that these populations sometimes don't have the access to care they need. They live in areas where there's more crowded housing, and this may allow for easier transmission of the virus. They also may live in areas where air quality is worsened by living near refineries or major highways. And all those factors play a role in making the disease more likely to lead to complications and death. So I think part of our research and advocacy efforts need to be in making sure that we take care of those more vulnerable populations by way of policies and regulations. And then uh, the health promotion part of it is mainly to make sure we are educating not only the public, but also uh, continuing to educate uh, providers around the nuances of COVID-19. And a lot of it we don't know yet. We don't know if there's going to be reinfection rates. We don't know if this is going to be immunity that's going to last a lifetime, or are we going to need yearly vaccines once the vaccines are available? So there's so much that we don't know about the virus and its disease process that we're going to learn, and that's where we want to use this action initiative to promote that, along with working with other larger partners. We know that this is not something that one organization can do alone. We want to help collaborate with whether it's pharmaceutical companies, other foundations. Certainly, there are global organizations that have been looking at pandemic readiness for a number of years. So I think we all have learned from this pandemic Certainly, it's unprecedented in many of our lifetimes. We would hope not to have to deal with something like this again in the very near future, but I think we're fooling ourselves if we think it won't happen again. We just have to learn from what has gone on during the last few months since it arose in China back in the end of December till now. We have to learn from this and try to make sure we're prepared the next time around and not become relaxed once and if this this pandemic uh, gets to a very quiet phase And when that's going to be, we don't know. Like you mentioned, this is probably not the last time that we'll be facing a pandemic of this scale, hopefully not in our lifetime. But like I said earlier, the goal of the initiative is to not just end COVID-19, but also to defend against future respiratory virus pandemics. You just listed the steps of the initiative, but what are some of the main factors that you will be zeroing in on so that the target of preventing future pandemics can be actualized? I think one of the main ones we can do as a collaborator with larger organizations, and this includes governmental organizations, is to make sure that we have a better understanding of where these viruses are emerging and how they're emerging. This can include everything from trying to have better government regulations around the types of 
wet markets that may have been implicated in the origination of this virus in Wuhan. So those kind of policies would be important to promote worldwide. Some of the issue with that is that some of the these markets really are the backbone of that society as far as what they need in order to to survive. But trying to change that practice may be a tough one, but that's where it's going to take large global efforts to put them into place. The other thing would be to make sure that at a federal level and certainly at a state level, we work with policymakers to make sure the right amount of resources are put toward stockpiling of certain equipment, better readiness with regard to ramping up workforces if needed when and if this happens. And the same type of research dollars, preferably from a federal level such as the NIH, might go toward having a better sense of how to handle the development of a vaccine in a little bit quicker manner than we could. I think the vaccine rate right now is listed at maybe six to 12 months from now, which would be optimistic, I think. But there are already clinical trials in place to start using several candidates as a vaccination for this disease. And I think we learned from SARS and MERS that this virus had similar RNA protein in it. And information that we got from SARS and MERS did allow scientists to very quickly identify the virus, do the genetic code of the virus. And that's the first step at identifying not only potential vaccines, but also identifying potential treatments for it. So I think that's another place where advocating for research dollars in that area, as well as for dollars to be put toward readiness and stockpiling of appropriate equipment is necessary. And some of that equipment includes nasal swabs, reagents for having studies done. The whole issue of not having enough tests revolved around not having enough equipment to run those tests in a rapid manner, get the tests collected with nasal swabs, have the right amount of reagents in order to run the tests. And we're still struggling with having enough testing being done to identify where the COVID virus is residing in these patients. So that needs to be an ongoing effort and a realization that going forward, testing has to be paramount. Anytime a pandemic like this starts to occur, we have to learn from what they did in South Korea and Japan and other places that started testing very, very quickly and toward the whole population, not just in hotspots. So I think that's where a lot of the global effort needs to be in learning from this past several months. Absolutely. Do you think there is anything else your peers should know about the COVID-19 action initiative? Maybe any developments that they can expect to come from the initiative that can directly impact the way they treat patients with COVID-19 or another respiratory illness? Well, I think the first part of this is we want everybody to be part of it. We want everybody to understand it, to to visit our websites and learn what we're doing. And certainly the clinicians and researchers who are out there who have ideas, who are already doing research, potentially in this area, to know that we're looking for other proposals from them to help support them, to help move this along. We're also looking to other industries, pharma, to potentially co-fund with companies that are already working on potential effective therapies or working on vaccines. We know we can't do that alone. This is a, a situation where you know millions, if not billions of dollars need to be put into vaccines for worldwide use. But we wanna know that we wanna partner with them and be able to uh, spread the message. I think one thing the American Lung Association has in addition to whatever funds we put toward this is the, the outreach and the trusted history we have as a 115-year-old organization to try to be a, a non-governmental, non-political organization, really there for the interest of public health and try to be honest about the information that's out there. 
when you have information coming so quickly from all parts of the world about this COVID-19, it becomes very easy to hear different things that are maybe not always accurate. And we need to be able to verify sources and learn from multiple people before we identify one aspect of this particular disease that we should work on. And that's why I said earlier that the communication between physicians from China and Italy and the United States to help treat these patients effectively has been very, very important when you really don't have effective vaccines or effective therapies at our fingertips. Right. And I've heard from other practitioners that social media has really helped them in spreading that knowledge country to country very quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Obviously, one of the goals of the initiative is to gain knowledge on COVID-19. But what has already been learned from this pandemic that we can use to better protect and prepare ourselves for the next respiratory pandemic? Well, I think one thing that we learned is that the tried and true message that we use every year about influenza, about you know, washing your hands frequently, staying away from sick people, covering your, your mouth when you cough or sneeze, those are always going to be very important. And I think what we've also learned now that some of the social distancing measures we put in place, the not handshaking, staying six feet apart. I mean, I think it'll be a while till we go back to some type of hugging and handshaking, and we may never go back to the way we were. I think we've learned from that that those measures are very, very important and hopefully will prevent the need to go to the mitigations such as lockdowns and keeping people in the home. We know that hand washing and covering our mouth works. We know that staying away from sick people work. And we just have to be aware that if something is arising in our communities, it's even more important for those kind of efforts to be made, especially among those who have a chronic illness or elderly or the more vulnerable for whatever reason. So I think that's the the main message we've learned. And then as far as specific to COVID-19, we have to realize now that respiratory pathogens can do different things. They don't all act the same. Influenza doesn't act the same as coronavirus. And we have to be prepared with different therapeutics and different approaches to the care of the critically ill when they get put on ventilators. So all those things we've learned and I think uh, will help us the next time around if we need to during our lifetimes. Well, it sounds like the initiative will certainly be beneficial and it'll be exciting to see what positive impact it will have. So Dr. Rizzo, thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it.